Well, it's good to be with you today. My name is Rick. If you don't know me, I work here. I am the youth director with the junior high and high schoolers. So uh, it's great to be able to change things up a bit, speak on Sundays. Kyle and I actually did a little swap this week. He spoke with the youth group on Tuesday. Did a great job. And so uh, anyway, I get to talk to you guys today, which I am excited about. Um, so heh. <laughs> trying to think, okay, how can I intro this message? We're going to be looking at Philippians 2, by the way, 19 to 30. So you open your Bibles there. And, and uh, this is a section of scripture that deals with um, some followers of Jesus who live out the gospel well. And so I was trying to think, okay, how can I be creative to hook us in here? And it came across my mind, uh, and many of you know this, I have a car problem in many ways. One of them being that I continuously buy, sell, and trade them and typically when that happens, the car doesn't work well and I have to fix it, right? So over time, I've bought uh, manuals and, and uh, just tried to fix these cars myself. And every car I get, I get a little better and a little better and a little better. Um, but I have come to realize, and this makes no sense to me, but when I have a manual in front of me that says step one, step two, step three, etc., etc., leads to this conclusion, and this is all you have to do is just follow the rules and you'll get there. For whatever reason, my brain is just like, it just stops and doesn't work. Okay, I don't know if any, anybody like that. Like, if you look at directions, it makes no sense. Eh? I, okay, I guess there's not many of us, but it's who I am. And so what I have found with working on cars, uh, there have been times where uh, I'm stuck. And there's one car that I got stuck on a lot. Uh, I, I bought a 73 Dodge Dart not too long ago, and this car... I mean, it had rust all over, and the paint was terrible, and the vinyl top was falling off and stuff, but I loved it. I paid 900 bucks for this thing. My dad and I, we'd worked on restoring cars back in the day, and so I was really excited. My wife, who's wise and discerning, said, Rick, are you sure you want to do that? This is your daily driver. It's really old. And, and I'm like, oh, no, babe, this is all good. It's, it's an old car. They're easy to work on. I'm set. So uh, in the back of my head, though, I'm like, oh, she's probably right, but I'm going to take my chances here. So I, I put the 900 bucks in the guy's hand. I drive the car away, and we live on a Hatch Road exit off Highway 395 that way, and, and there's a big hill on the highway. And, and I'm, I'm driving home. I'm all excited, kind of nervous, hoping it doesn't break down. And, of course, I start going up the hill, and blah, 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 blah. it just dies. <laughs> like, no, Jesus, no. <laughs> Have mercy on me, please. Grace. Ah. And so anyway, I eventually was able to get it home, restarting it, restarting it. It got there. And I could not figure out what was wrong with this beast. So eventually, it, it, uh, after I'd try something and then it would die again, I know Brian Husk, this great guy right here, he, he, uh, I call him from, what's the, the little kid place on Division up the hill? Bump, uh, whatever. Some place for you. Wonderland, yes, Wonderland. I, I, I roll into Wonderland with my car not working. And uh, Brian comes and he picks up my car on his, on his trailer and take it to his place. And I tell you, this guy's amazing. He knows his stuff. And uh, we would work on my car. We, we bought a new gas tank for it, fuel lines for it, rebuilt, had a carburetor rebuilt, and did all these other various things. And I learned a ton during this time of getting to hang out with the man, Brian Husk, working on my car. And eventually we got it running, or I should say he got it running, and I learned things. And, and I find in my life, when I simply look at that owner's manual, I, my brain doesn't function well. But when I get to work alongside someone, when I get to see someone actually do something, I, my learning curve just launches. And, and so I've been able to come away from that knowing way more about cars and also learning that I know nothing hardly at all. But it was a great experience. And, and today, 
as we look at Philippians here, we get to look at three guys and follow their examples. We get to see the gospel lived out in the way that God has designed it to be. So we're going to look at Timothy, we're going to look at uh, Onesimus, and then we're going to look at Paul. So um, let us read together verses 19 and 24. This is about Timothy, Paul writing. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. And I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Uh, I am someone who hates flying less than I used to. But there was a while in my life where, like, I would, like, shake in my shoes. I mean, I was just nervous, thinking the plane was going to implode and blow up. And, and I, I did not have confidence in my— uh, I didn't have not have confidence that an airplane would get me to my destination without me ending up in a fireball somewhere on the ground. And um, over time, the Lord has helped me with that. But every time I get on a plane, I always wonder, okay, Lord, is this the last time I'm going to be touching the earth <laughs> via the tires of this plane? And, and, but anyway, so I, I struggle there a little bit. There's one of my weaknesses. But um, if the airplane genuinely had a statistic going something to the extent of, it's a 50-50 chance that I will die today or live today, I would not fly on that airplane. Right? If, if those were the statistics that we had to deal with every time we flew, would any of you still fly? No. I hope, don't. Don't. Okay? But fortunately for us, the statistics are somewhere probably, I'm making this up, but I'm thinking 99.9 something likelihood percent chance that we will survive from point A to point B on an airplane. All right? And so that, when Paul is speaking here, he's not speaking of of he really hopes, he, he wishes upon a star, he throws a penny into a pond hoping he gets his million dollar wish. When Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you, it's a confident expectation. That's what the Greek literally means. That he has a confident expectation in the Lord that, that he trusts in Jesus that if it's God's will, and he thinks it is, that he'll be able to send Timothy to the Philippian church. And now the Philippian church, as, as we've been learning uh, these last few weeks as Kyle's been preaching, they have sort of a special place in Paul's heart. Many times as Paul wrote uh, to different churches, there was a level of rebuke in there. There was a level of, hey, I've heard this is going on, and it's not godly, and this is what needs to happen. The Philippian church, on the other hand, is a church that was honoring God through their lives. And he wanted to send Timothy to them so that Paul could be cheered by news of them living for Christ. And I find that remarkable because... Paul, as we all know, is sort of like, it's, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity, and then Paul is like the guy right underneath there. I mean, he is, he is the guy that represents what every Christian should attain to be. And Paul says he wants to be cheered by the church in Philippi. We are united in Christ. And we're going to be looking at that here more as we continue on. But, but Paul is saying, you guys are living for Jesus in a way that encourages me. And I'm sending Timothy to you, hopefully, Lord willing, not so I can rebuke you because I've heard all these crazy things you're doing, but so that I can, in turn, be encouraged by how you're following Jesus. And I, I wonder about that in my own life. Uh, do people come to me for encouragement in my faith? Do people come to you for an encouragement in, in their faith? I think oftentimes that's not the situation. I think 
many times it sort of almost can be reversed where I wonder, boy, when I come to people, are they kind of like, oh boy, here comes Rick? And I think there's times that happens. And uh, I was in, I go to Moody Bible College, and I was in a, a cultural anthropology class two weeks ago, which is basically a mission class studying other cultures and how to interact with them. And our professor, Dr. Biney, shared this story of his friend who's a missionary, and he said, my friend came back from the mission field, and he told us about how uh, when he first went to this place, everyone was, like, stealing things from him constantly. And he would get so frustrated about this. And what he didn't realize was that in that culture, they just had a different way of dealing with stuff. So, like, in America, this is my car. You don't take my car unless you ask and fill up the gas tank. Not necessarily, but you have to ask because it's mine. It's my house. It's my food. Please ask if you're going to take it. I'll probably share with you, but just ask. Well, in this culture, it was different. People just had this concept that, if I need the hammer, I will use the hammer. And no one's insulted by that. It was just sort of this joint sharing. Well, this missionary failed to realize that. And so eventually he got so frustrated, he came flying out his door one day and he said, stop stealing my things. They're my things. Leave me alone. And so, of course, all the local people are terrified of this man. And, and eventually God gets a hold of this missionary's heart and starts wrestling through with him that it's, it's stuff. It's, it doesn't matter. You're here to love these people, to serve these people, to show these people about who I am and what I've done for them. And so eventually he, he comes to his senses and he starts interacting with the people in a respectful, kind, God-honoring way. And what he found started happening is they would come up to him because they were terrified before so they wouldn't come up to him. Uh, and, and they said, are you a Christian? Did you become a Christian? Did you give your life to Jesus? This is one of those things where he's like, oh no, <laughs> this is not good. I am the missionary. I am supposed to tell you about Jesus. We're not off to a good start. And, and fortunately, God redeemed the situation and, and everything turned out well. But does that speak of us in our lives? Are we one of those people in our work or in our families where people could say, you're a Christian? You know Jesus? I didn't realize that. And so we need to really be conscious of that. I want us to be, and I think we are, a church that's like that Philippian church where there's an encouragement that when people hear about us, they say, yeah, these people love Jesus and they're following him. But we need to continue to walk in that, to continue to pursue that call in our lives. In verse 20, Paul goes on to say, For I have no one like him, referring to Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And I like the New American Standard Bible, the translation that it gives. It says, For I have no one else of kindred spirit. And when we look at, at the Greek here, it literally means one-souled. So no one like him. One-souled. Timothy was Paul's ultimate apprentice in the faith. He, he had served with, with Paul. He had served Paul. He had learned under Paul more than probably any other person who ever lived. And here are some of the things that uh, Paul actually said about Timothy, just in kind of highlighting uh, the relationship that they had. Paul said in 1 Timothy uh, 1, 2, he called him his true child in the faith. 2 Timothy 1, 2, he said, my beloved son. 1 Corinthians 4, 17, he referred to Timothy as my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Romans 16, 21, my fellow worker. And 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, he called Timothy his brother. And then in Philippians 1, 1, the book that we're in, Paul calls Timothy his fellow bondservant. These two joyfully served the Lord side by side, not as slaves who were regretting their position, but grateful to be servants, to be slaves of their God, Jesus Christ. Acts 20, 24 says this. It says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying the good news of God's grace. 
that represents these two men. Now also, notice how Paul speaks of Timothy's genuine concern for the church in Philippi. And there's something special about kind of the Christian connection. I don't mean some like dating site, you know, thechristianconnection.com. Okay, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about we have this like connection as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ that I don't necessarily have with family members of mine who I've known for 28 years who don't love Jesus, who don't know him. I was meeting with a a pastor a while back who uh, runs a small group ministry in his church, and and we do small groups in our youth ministry here at Indian Trail. I was was wanting to talk to him about how can I better run this section of our ministry. And so I met with him. Uh, We're having some coffee. I'm asking him questions. He's giving me some answers on, on some really helpful insights. And as I'm sitting there listening, I'm sort of also thinking like, and this is crazy. This guy, I, I learned his name a few weeks ago, and I don't know him hardly at all, and he's willing to meet with me, and he doesn't know me from anybody else. And, and there's this, this connection. I'm just like, man, this guy, we're, we're close. I can sense a closeness. We have this common goal of serving Christ, and that it united us. And I just remember thinking there, just sort of in this, as a secondary thought, that there's this unity that comes because of who God is and what he has done for us. And that's exactly what Paul is speaking of Timothy here. And speaking of Timothy and his deep care for the Philippian church, they knew of Timothy, but they weren't intimately involved in Timothy's life like other people had been. But there's still this deep concern that is there. And does that describe us? Do we have a deep concern for others, for ourselves? Do we have deep concern even, you know, Don's ministry in Latvia? Are we concerned? Or am I concerned for children dying because they can't get insulin? And I find myself distant from the causes of Christ that go on around the world, or maybe it's your cubicle buddy, or your school person, or something, or a family member that, that you need to interact with that, that honors God, that you care for them in the way that Jesus has called you to that you have not yet done. We're going to jump back to verse 21 in a minute, but first let's look at verse 22. Uh, Paul says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. So a minute ago we looked at what Timothy meant to Paul, and now we're going to look quickly here at what Timothy actually did in proving his worth for serving Jesus in the ministry alongside Paul. Here's what it says in Acts 17. Paul, uh, when he, Paul was forced to leave Berea, and Timothy and Silas were called to stay to carry on um, Paul's work. Timothy, carry on Paul's work. Acts 19, Paul sent Timothy to Macedonia to preach the gospel, and he sent him to a whole bunch of other places to preach the gospel. He was Paul's troubleshooter for the Corinthian and the Thessalonican church. And Paul charged Timothy to oversee the church in Ephesus after he left. Uh, this is a bit embarrassing. Um, I watched—well, I don't anymore just because I haven't had the chance. But I'm kind of a follower, or was, of The Apprentice, the Trump, Donald Trump. Everyone at least knows Donald Trump. Maybe you know the sh- don't know the show, but, but it's embarrassing. I'm sorry. So— this show, it, it basically deals with, like, people in the business world who want to make it in the business realm, and, and they want to be Donald Trump's apprentice, Donald Trump's apprentice. And so they basically sign up for the show, and 12, 15 people, something like that, get selected, and they get put in teams, and they're responsible for, for doing these different tasks that the Trump gives them to do. So they may be responsible in competing with each other for creating the best advertising campaign, or who can sell the most product, or who can make the best presentation of something— and it's, it's remarkable watching these people who are well-educated, uh, well-respected in society in many ways, just, just go back and 
forth and just be bitter at one another and stab each other in the back and fight amongst themselves and sabotage one another. And Timothy, he was not one of those kind of guys. He would have been one of those kind of guys if he was on this show who would have risen above the fray, who would have lived a life of honor, who would have done a fabulous job for everything that was called of him. Timothy was the apprentice of, of, of Paul, and he served him well. And if we look back at verse 21, it says this, for they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Again, back to this little Donald Trump thing. There were people who were serving themselves. They'd, take, they'd do whatever they could to get on the top, to make it. It didn't matter what they did. And Paul here is referring to Christians. They seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. As we look back in this book of Philippians, there's a section where Paul speaks about how Christians are preaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry. And we think to ourselves, what? Christians would do that? And, and they did. Paul's very clear about it, that they did. And, and we think, no, that doesn't still happen, does it? No. And I kind of thought it didn't, and then I thought about it some more as I was preparing for this, and then I thought, wait a second. How many of us have said or have heard, well, my church is bigger than your church, or Oh yeah, well, my church has better doctrine than your church. We actually know the Bible. We're not a mile wide and inch deep. Or someone might then say, oh yeah, well, our church is spirit-filled. Hallelujah. Right? See, there's this level where we have infighting sometimes, don't we? And, and that's not what God's called us to do. Now, I will caution us with that. There are absolute necessary things we need to stand 100% in, and sometimes people go against what Scripture teaches. So we have to be careful to be discerning about what God wants us to do. But there are times where we get way too caught up in the, in the fringes of things that God's not called us to, to just bash each other about. Timothy was not one of those guys. He was above the fray. He cared. He was someone who lived out the gospel, who didn't seek his own interests, but sought out the interests of others. Philippians 1.21, Kyle looked at the other week, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think that verse is almost like the antithesis of Philippians 2.21, where it says, For they seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. As a Christian, as a believer in Jesus, you will find yourself in one or the other camp. And you may find yourself in one or the other camp frequently through many different days and many different times of your life. But God has called us to be Philippians 1.21 Christians, where we care about Jesus and his interests, which then in turn means that we care about the interests of others and that we don't seek our own interests. Because when we seek the interests of others, we're seeking the interests of Jesus Christ. Because he was a servant to all, and that's exactly what we are called to be, and that's exactly what Timothy was. He served. All right, moving on. We're going to look at Epaphroditus. Everybody say Epaphroditus. I do this youth group. Make sure they're still awake that way. That's a hard word. I'm going to have to say it a few times, so I just want you to feel my pain. Uh, Epaphroditus, I call, I call this part the bold sufferer. This guy suffered for Jesus with boldness. So let's read through verse 25 to 30 here. Paul says this. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed, he was ill, Ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. 
Now, as I first started studying Epaphroditus, I, I kind of thought, man, this guy has a girl name, but maybe I am confused, and I am confused a lot. But, but I, I looked it up, and, and it actually means, and it was, his name was after the Greek goddess for love, beauty, and gambling, okay? And it actually meant, literally, favored by Aphrodite, okay, that Greek goddess. So this is, this is a man's man, okay, with a name that was probably pretty cool back then, but I just got confused by that. A little side note, but it's actually when, when, when people would gamble back then, scholars think that, that, that the people who would gamble would actually say, okay, okay, Aphrodite, here we go, boom, and they'd like, like call on the Greek goddess of gambling so they'd do better with gambling. So, so Epaphroditus was not someone who was raised in a home, probably, where Jesus was the central figure in their lives, all right? He probably was raised in a Greek society with Greek mytho- mythology and things like that. So he was a, a later convert to Christianity. And he wasn't someone like Paul or Timothy, who pretty much most of the Christian ancient world knew about, and pretty much the entire modern Christian world knows about. Epaphroditus is one of those guys you could kind of read through the section and just be done with it and not even think twice, because he's just sort of like a little comma in, in, in this whole entire huge thing called the Bible. But he's actually not. He was a layman, he, he, which I don't like that word. Uh, he was someone who served the church faithfully from, uh, in a sense, where you guys are at. If you come on a, on a Sunday, you serve during the week, he was someone who was engaged in his church. He was probably not a deacon. He probably wasn't an elder. He probably was never a pastor. But he was a man who faithfully followed the call that God had in his life, regardless of the cost. Um, it it would have taken for, for Epaphroditus. So he's bringing, he brought a, a monetary gift to Paul. Because remember, Paul's in, in house, under house arrest right now. He's got a, a Roman guard like shackled to him 24 hours a day. Okay, so Paul is not going out and working. Paul is stuck where he is. And who, remember, Paul is, is in, in house arrest because he is a follower of who? Follower of Christ. Paul was serving Jesus, and because of that, Paul was now under house arrest. So Epaphroditus is also a follower of Christ. And Epaphroditus is bringing this financial gift to Paul so that he won't starve, so that he can continue on. And he's going into the house where there's someone arrested for being the exact same thing that he is. You know what I mean? A bold man? He boldly went where no man had gone before. Oh, it's terrible. I'm sorry. He boldly went to where God had called him to go. Does that describe us? It doesn't always describe me. Sometimes God will say, hey, Rick, I want you to talk to that person. I say, ah, it's okay. I'll, no, no. Ah, this man was faithful to risk his life to encourage the church to go where God had called him to go. It actually, from the church of Philippi to Rome, it was about an 800-mile journey. So basically, that would be the same as like us walking from here to Seattle, from Seattle to here, and then here back to Seattle. Okay, that's a long ways. And we don't really have to worry about too many wild animals. Okay, there were wild animals out, all, and, and there were uh, robbers and thieves and criminals on these roads. They didn't have like we do. You know, we go on—well, I don't go on cruises, but those of you who go on cruises, you know, or go to other countries, you, you got to get shots, and you get all these things to make sure you're safe. And they didn't have that. They didn't have that back then. This was a man who was willing to do whatever God called him to do. Verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my needs. Paul uses three powerful phrases to encapsulate 
how he views this man. So first, he refers to him as his brother. Obviously, not a brother from the same mom. We're talking in the spiritual realm here, kind of like when I was just talking about that pastor that I met with a while back. And when Kyle spoke at our youth group this last Tuesday, he said something that I I thought was so cool. It just kind of reminded me of of this, that, you know, he said, as a, a Christian, you could get dropped anywhere in the world where there's another believer. And you might not understand the language, you might not understand the customs, but you have unity in Christ. You are a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ with that person. And Paul and Epaphroditus were exactly that. They were united in Christ. Second, he, he calls uh, him his fellow worker. And these days, uh, we hear a lot about on the news, if you watch the news, the 99%, we're the 99%, and they're referring to that, you know, the wealthiest 1% have lots of stuff and they don't. I won't get into politics and how things annoy me. Um, but basically, their concept behind this thing is that there's a, a, a larger gap between the rich and the poor, and it's increasing. And um, Paul could have looked at himself like that 1%, in a sense, in, in the Christian world. Everybody knew of Paul. Paul wrote books of the Bible. He, I mean, these letters were going out to all the churches. People identified, uh, even at that time, that Paul's writings were of the Lord, and that they were to be followed and, and obeyed and, and looked after with, with care. And so Paul was sort of in the Christian realm, the superstar, that 1%. People could have identified him as that anyways. Right? And, and Epaphroditus was, was just your regular churchgoer. And people probably weren't as like, oh, it's Epaphroditus, wow. But in God's economy, in God's realm, someone who works for him is someone who loves him and does what God has called him to do. I think too many times we make this distinction between like the, you know, holier-than-thou cool jobs and then just the regular Christian people living out their life in the, the real world, really. I like to call it. And God is saying that, man, we are united. Paul says fellow worker. There's no differentiation here. They are united as brothers, as fellow workers in Christ, doing the exact things that God has called them to do because that is all that matters. Titles don't matter. What you wear doesn't matter. What you make doesn't matter. What matters is being faithful to the call that God has given you in your life. We were at uh, the Desiring God conference, Corey and Kyle and Joan and I, last month, and um, a lot of you know who John Piper is. He, in a sense, many would argue, would sort of be like that 1%. Oh, it's John Piper. And uh, it was pretty awesome. We were sitting in this conference, and, and Piper just got finished speaking. And uh, it was just, it's like the masses. I mean, just ran to that man, and they all have their cameras out like they're tourists, you know. And just person after person just, yeah, you know, like, hey, everyone, I, I was with John Piper. In, in fact, uh, we had, um, we have some friends who actually live in his basement, uh, he's going to seminary, and his wife just had a baby, and, and Evan, who's preached here a few times, he was back there, and so he had dinner with this couple in John Piper's basement, and he actually texted Kyle. He, he texted him, because Kyle's like, because they could kind of mock this thing, you know, he's like, I'm going to get a picture with him. I'm going to text you, because I'm going to be so cool, and so Kyle gets this text coming through, and he opens it, thinking it's me. Oh, it's, it's Evan with Piper, and he opens it, and he said, it's John Piper's toilet. He has a picture of John Piper's toilet there, and Sorry, youth group, I don't know. Anyway, but th- there's this thing where it's like, man, we're, we're just followers of Jesus, and we just need to follow Jesus with whatever he's called us to do. Epaphroditus, he wasn't drooling that I get to go see Paul. No, he was doing what God called him to do, and Paul was doing what God called him to do. And they were fellow workers side by side in spreading the gospel. And third, Paul called Epaphroditus his fellow soldier. 
alluding to the fact that they're not fighting a physical war, they're fighting a spiritual war. And that reminded me of Ephesians 6, 10 to 17, which is something I believe every single day we need to engage with and put on the armor of God. It says this, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith in which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. These men represented Ephesians 6, 10 to 17, kind of Christian. They followed Jesus in the battle. And they had the proper attire for that battle. And every day we need to engage. God, am I focused on you? Am I protected? Do I have faith in you? Do I have trust in you? Do I have your word hidden in my heart so as I am attacked by Satan, I can fight against that, I can stand against that, I can move forward against Satan. And this isn't like a Jack Bauer type of battle. Okay, Jack Bauer, sorry. He's like a go get him kind of guy all by himself, conquer the world, Rambo, modern sense. But we aren't called to that. We are called to live out our faith as the church. We are called to fight against the evil one as the church united. These were fellow soldiers together, and we each play a role in this world that we live in and in the world that we don't see. And I think as Americans, sometimes we neglect because we live in such a uh, modern, uh, non-spiritual, mindseted type of place. Where in other countries and other cultures, this is a a thing that Christians regularly have to interact with in visible ways. These were soldiers for Christ who fought side by side. So back uh, in verse 25, we'll continue on there. Notice Paul transitions from the my to the word your, thus referring to the Philippian church. Paul says that Epaphroditus was your messenger and minister to my need. So Paul recognizes first that, that Epaphroditus is a, an ambassador to Christ, and secondly, he, he recognizes the fact that this man represents the Philippian church coming to him with his monetary gifts, with words of encouragement. Things were different back then. Today we fly. We can Skype. Has anybody Skyped before? It's basically video conferencing. Anybody around the world, practically, if you have the internet. Satellite phones, you call anywhere. People, you know, text and, and Facebook, if you don't have Facebook, thank you. Okay, it's way too overwhelming to deal with because it's just constant. But there's so many communication factors going in in our lives that we're just like inundated by it. And it wasn't the case back then. Again, he had, he had to go 800 miles just to deliver some financial goods and some words of encouragement. Today, it's like you put it in the bank and it's there and then it gets wired over to wherever in a second. He was a messenger of the gospel. And are we messengers of the gospel in our lives? Yeah, maybe we don't have to walk 800 miles, but wherever we're at, do we bring that encouragement? 
those things we've just been looking at? Are we those messengers? Are we the ones that carry God's news, his words, his truths into the lives of believers and non-believers alike? And he was faithful in doing that. Secondly, he's the minister. He's a minister to their needs from the church in Philippi. 1 Peter 2.5, God says that we are all ministers. All of us. Not the guy up front who talks to you for a few minutes on Sundays. We are ministers, but you're just as much of a minister as we are. We are all high priests of God. In the Old Testament, there is one guy that did that. And we all now have God in us as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ. He dwells in you. And so we are ministers because he is at work in us and is working through us. And again, it goes back to that title thing. Titles don't matter to God. We are his, and we are to be representing him and showing him to others. And that's exactly what Onesimus did here. He ministered to Paul. Again, the one that everyone had heard of. This man, this man who who was from his church, was able to interact with Paul and encourage Paul as a minister in the gospel. It says this in verse 26 to 30, For he has been longing for you, all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the sake of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. When I get sick, Tiffany can attest to this, I kind of turn into a baby, okay? My dad, he was 20 years in the Marines as an officer, major, all this stuff, and, and I think I got it from him. It's his fault. He's a real tough guy, but when he got sick, he was on the couch with a blanket over him, asking for food and whatever, and I'm the same way. And, and my wife is servant-hearted and loving and gracious and patient, and I could go on and on. And when I'm sick, I kind of think about me a lot and how I'm sick and how I don't want to be sick and how I want to be all better. And this guy, he was going to die. Now, back then, they didn't have medical facilities, let's say, like we have today, all right? When someone was near death 2,000 years ago, chances are they were going to die. And so, in one sense, this is a miraculous event. The Lord allowed that he willed Epaphroditus to survive. He had mercy on him. He showed him mercy. We all deserve death. The wages of sin is death. And God had mercy. He had mercy on him and had mercy uh, on Paul as well because of the grief that would have caused Paul. But here's the crazy part to me. He's not even worried about the fact he's maybe going to die. All he cared about was that his church back home realized that he was okay once he got better. He was concerned about not himself. He was concerned about others and their well-being. And as a little side note, Obviously, the church back in Philippi had heard about this, which gives us the understanding that uh, he didn't actually travel up to Rome all by himself. He had a team, so someone would have went back to inform the church of his sickness, of his impending death, probably. And so he wanted to be able to get back because he was concerned for his church. And Paul, at the same time, also said that he wanted them, he wanted him to be sent back to the church as well so that he would be less anxious because it also uh, caused Paul concern for the love that this church had for their fellow servants. James 1, 21, 2 to 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you, count, when you meet trials of various kinds, 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So Paul also at the same time knew that uh, through suffering, through difficulties, he could still honor the Lord, he could still deal with the, the hard times that could come along with that. But we have to remember here too, when Paul says sorrow upon sorrow, he's in jail, he, he's a guy, he's a missionary. I mean, he's taking trips all over that part of the world when he's free. And so he's at a time that's difficult for him. And he was greatly encouraged by the fact that God had allowed Onesimus to survive. Epaphroditus, sorry, what am I saying the wrong name there? Oh boy. Um, so, towards the end there, uh, it talks about how he risked his life um, to expose, uh, which means to expose oneself to danger or risk. So he was willing to do whatever it took to share the gospel, to share the good news with those around him. He went to any lengths that it took to be faithful to the call that God gave. Do we do that? Does that represent us? I came across this story, and I thought that it illustrates this point well. The story is told of two inseparable friends who enlisted together, trained together, shipped out together, and fought in the trenches together in a field in, during World War I. And during an attack, one of the duo was critically wounded in a, in a, fil- in a field filled with barbed wire obstacles, and because of that was unable to crawl back to his foxhole. The entire area was under enemy fire, and it was suicidal to try to reach him. But nevertheless, undaunted, his friend decided to give it a go. But before he could get out of his own trench, the sergeant yanked him back and told him, You're mad. It's far too late. He's going to die, and you're just going to get yourself killed. Well, a few minutes went by, and the officer turned his back, and instantly his mate went after his friend. Shortly after, he staggered back, mortally wounded, with his friend now dead in his arms. And the sergeant was both angry and deeply moved, and he said, What a waste! He's dead and you're dying. It just wasn't worth it. With almost his last breath, the dying soldier retorted, Yes, it was. For when I got him, the only thing that he said was, I knew that you would come, Jim. And the lesson is that Jim was there for his friend, whatever the cost. And it's going to look different to each of us. But we're in a battle. We're in a battle together. And we have a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us in the faith, who have run the race with diligence and made it across the victory line from this world into the next. Are we willing to sacrifice our lives to further God's purposes in this world? Are we willing to ask Jesus to give us the strength to do his will? Sometimes that's even hard for us, to even ask God, help me to be okay with what it is that you want me to do in my life. Are you willing to ask Jesus to give you the strength to go where he calls you with your family, to leave the job that pays well, Is it to, to be kind to the person who's been brutally mean to you? Where do we stand? We have Philippians 1.21, Christian, to live as Christ, to die as gain. We have Philippians 2.21, Christian, where we're self-focused. A lot of us might be in here today thinking, oh, but, you know, I can't, I'm not these guys. They, I, I didn't know Paul. I, I wasn't an early Christian who everything was so fresh with. I'm American. This is different in our world today. And yes, it's different. But I want to remind us here of, of Philippians 2.13, where it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
There's two ways we can go that are both extremely dangerous if we try to just do better and do more for God. Either we're going to become a Pharisee, someone who is self-righteous, who's arrogant, who's prideful, who Jesus said was like a whitewashed tomb, who said was like a, a cup that was clean on the outside but on the inside was filthy. See, we might do good. We might do well at living a, a Christ-looking-like faith. Or there's going to be some on the other side who maybe your tendency is going to self-pity yourself because you try and you keep failing and failing and falling and falling and not doing good enough for God. We have to remember it's not our strength. That's, those things are not what God has called us to. For it is God who works in us. The maker of the universe, the one who made you, dwells inside of you and empowers you through his strength to serve him with joy. So it's not this burdensome thing that creates pride or defeat. It's a thing that creates dependence on God so that we would will to do his work. We would want to do his work. We would desire to do his work. And that we would actually do his work for his good pleasure. Because that brings us pleasure. Not that it's about us at all, but I tell you what, when you follow Christ, you're in his will and there's no better place to be. Not, not the thing of the safest place to be, like some people have said, but it is the best place to be. And these men are men that we can follow. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. These men set an example for us. And I hope that it could be said of me, of every person in this room, that someone could say, yeah, follow so-and-so as they follow Christ. May that be said of us as a church.